Welcome to the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. This is Randy Kemp, host and creator of the podcast. I welcome you to my final season of the show with the theme titled Finishing the Crumbs, as I am officially wrapping up this year for good. I hope you enjoy the episodes for the season. Happy listening, everybody. Hi, everyone. So this is Randy Kim of the Bunmi Chronicles podcast, and I am here with Rahime Ramazani. Rahime is a multi-ethnic, neurodiverse, Muslim-American woman and a DEI and intercultural practitioner. She founded her DEI business in 2021 in order to train organizations on how to build and include Muslims and in religious identity in their existing DEI efforts while developing nuanced understandings and practice DEI skills that can be applied across identity groups. Rahime leverages her lived experiences at the intersections of multiple marginalized and privileged identities and has a master's degree in intercultural communication and years of professional DEI experience to address the often deeply uncomfortable but nonetheless essential work of making our spaces inclusive and equitable for all. So I'd like to welcome you to my show and I have been watching your work on LinkedIn for quite some time. And I, I have to say that the work that you do in DEI work is, is fundamentally extremely important. Uh, I can also say that I don't see the, the work that you do as common spread as it should mm. be. So I feel it's very important to have you on my show to help mm. to talk about other parts of DEI that hasn't been focused on specifically mm. with um specifically on the education and culture of Muslim Americans and other religious groups. Mm. Thank you, Randy, so much for having me. Hello, listeners, uh, wherever you may be in the world. I hope you're well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, religious identity overall. Uh, obviously, I am Muslim myself, born and raised Muslim, uh, born and raised Muslim American. Uh, so that is very much the kind of niche, even within religious inclusion, that I can speak to because that's my lived experience. However, even if we broaden it out to religious identities across the board, religion is just not touched almost at all within DEI spaces. But if diversity of the human experience absolutely includes religious, spiritual identity groups that plays a part so much in our day to day lives. And I understand the tension and like that it's a taboo subject, especially like, you know, again, I'm American in the Western context, in the American context is, oh, we don't talk about politics and religion, politics and religion, politics and religion. So I understand where it comes from. I'm not here to like criticize anyone for, you know, being uncomfortable with it, especially also in, you know, the politics of our country right now and honestly forever religion to some extent in certain ways certain groups have weaponized religious beliefs to oppress other communities that is absolutely valid so I can appreciate also people wanting to avoid religion at all because they have such negative connotations of it as a Muslim people have many people have very negative connotations around the religion of Islam and Muslims and all of that being said if we're talking specifically about diversity equity and inclusion work we cannot get away 
from the fact that religious identity overall is a huge part of people's identity. And we cannot just check our identities at the door, just as the same as our ethnicity and race and gender and sexual orientation and class and ageism, our age, our disability, neurodiversity, all of these other factors of who we are as people come to come with us in the door when we're at work, when we're at home, when we're at play, in all facets of life and need to be recognized and being treated inclusively and equitably. Yes, and also, yes, religious identity is very much a part of that. So my role is kind of bringing up that conversation and working through people's tensions, holding space for the fact, again, not demonizing people for a very valid reason why they might want to avoid. Actually, there's many valid reasons why someone might want to avoid talking about religion while also saying that there are many conversations that we have that make us very uncomfortable. And the fact that we're uncomfortable does not necessarily mean that we are going to avoid it and we're justified in just not talking about it at all. Problems of discrimination against religious communities are going to continue happening, especially if we don't talk about it upfront. So that's my work, bringing it up. How can we set up uh, boundaries? for success, because of course, we're not going to just open the can of worms and just hope for the <laughs> hope for the best and like not have any boundaries for success of where's going too far and what's going too little and moving forward in a constructive way and not being in competition with other communities that would feel that taking on a religious inclusion lens might going a little too far into their inclusive treatment and their equitable access to the same spaces. Thank you so much for amplifying this and for also uh, like to also raise the volume of what's going on with DEI and also mm -hmm. what the misconceptions are. And mm -hmm. actually, I want to go back to the basics of DEI. So for those who are curious, what does mm -hmm. DEI work consist of and what are the misconceptions that people mm -hmm. have about DEI? Yeah, so for the people in my life, which is really funny because I live and breathe diversity, equity, inclusion, for those who are hearing about DEI for the first time, DEI just stands for diversity, equity, inclusion. There are many other acronyms that you might hear, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. Some folks move the words around and do EDI, so equity, diversity, inclusion. Some people include J for justice in there. So you might see JEDI, right? You might see accessibility. So A for accessibility, like there are many other um, you know, words and different acronyms, but they are all generally expressing the same field, the same kind of work, whatever the acronym is. And the way I like to describe DEI work to folks in my life who have never heard of DEI, which like I said, is a little bit odd for me and a little bit jarring because I spend so much time immersed in this work. Uh, but especially in my private life, I do every once in a while still come up across people who have never heard of DI is that it's social justice work for organizations. And that is something that for me, I very much see DI as justice oriented work. It is about making a just society, an equitable society where everyone is treated with respect and dignity for who they are without forcing them to assimilate, forcing them to erase part of themselves or a huge, like most of themselves in order to belong or fit in amongst a dominant identity group. That is not something that, especially what gives me hope around millennials and Gen Z taking up more and more space within the working world, within organizations, in leadership in different capacities across society, 
and myself, I am a millennial. So I also feel a lot of pride in, you know, my own generation in this sense uh, that we are an incredibly diverse and Gen Z as well. We are both very diverse generations and we prioritize inclusion so, so much. And organizations that don't prioritize inclusiveness and equity are going to lose out from a business standpoint because our generations are going to be the ones either already running things or will be running things very strongly very, very soon. And we are looking for organizations that value the same things that we value, that treat their employees, whether we work for them or not, but treat their own employees well. There are many organizations that I have stopped engaging with based off of how they treat their employees just today. Ironically, the um, I don't know if anyone listening or Randy yourself as well, like have been following what's been going on with the writer's strike in Hollywood. But just today, the Actors uh, Guild, the Actors Union also voted to go on strike with the writers, which is so, so, so powerful. And so many people are coming out in support of the writers and now the actors joining the fight against companies that are using workers for profit and their CEOs and their executives are making huge, huge, huge profits. And their people who are really the base of their creativity are not even able to have a livable wage, not have healthcare, not pay for like the barest apartments and on and on. So all of that is to say with DEI being social justice work for organizations, that can take so many different forms in different organizations. And it really depends on how far along they are in valuing diversity, people being of different backgrounds and different kinds of people based off of different identities, uh, as well as treating people. If you have a diverse community in your space, whether it's an organization, a higher education setting, a K through 12 setting, uh, you know, government, so on. You have these diverse people present, but then also do they have a voice to affect change? Are they listened to? Are they respected? That would be what I would call inclusion. And then with equity being that because people are inherently different and there's nothing wrong with being different from each other, it's actually to be expected that people are different. And it is a strength of our society that we are different from each other, that people need different kinds of treatment equitably, not equally. We're not treating everyone exactly the same because again, we're not the same. Equitably treating people uh, with so that they can get the same opportunities and participate in the end in an equal, what ends up being an equal fashion. I wanna say, I love how you were just shouting out the millennial generation because as a millennial myself, I am just very encouraged in the past 10 years that we are mm. seeing efforts to create DEI happen. Mm, I mean, mm. I think when I, I'm, I just turned 40 last month and. Oh, and happy birthday, oh, that's awesome. You. Oh, thank you. And I was thinking about when I first graduated from college, how mm, mm. there was none of that happening. There was no discussions about mm. uh, race. There was no discussions about religion. There was no discussion about disability. Mm. And not to say that it's, far and far better yeah uh i mean as we'll soon later talk about but i'm proud that people in our age group and younger are stepping up and mm. calling attention to this mm. work that this needs to happen in order for us to feel safe in the workplace and we need to have these discussions mm -hmm. uh, we need to be able to not be the only ones educating uh white people privileged people to mm have to talk up 
to uh, treat us well, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's very important that we are seeing that shift happen. And I, I'm very curious about your own experiences uh, growing up. And was there a particular experience or experiences that that would inform you to get into DEI work? Mm. I, amongst the many different identities that anyone has, and myself being in, very much included in that, the reason I include Muslim American, multi-ethnic, and ADHD as a part of like my professional bio is because those three identities in particular really are at the heart of why I do the work that I do and inform how I do that work. So from being Muslim American, being born and raised in a Muslim family in the United States, I've been wearing hijab, uh, The which for those who may not be aware, hijab is the uh, headscarf that many Muslim women will wear to cover their hair, neck, and ears. Though, of course, not all Muslim women wear hijab, and it is not a signifier of someone being a better Muslim or not. It just is that some Muslim women do wear hijab, I being one of them. So having said that, um, I've been wearing hijab since I was 11 years old. And ironically, uh, I actually put it on for the first time at 10 years old, but that was the year September 11th happened. And now looking back, I didn't realize it at the time because again, I was like 10 years old and I wasn't paying attention to that kind of stuff. Uh, but now looking back at the timelines, I must have put it on like maybe a month, maybe a couple of weeks into like before September 11th happened uh, because I put it on before the start of the school year and the school year being like in August or September, and then right, like the dates lining up. Um, and then I took it off again, because my family was very, very scared for my safety at that time. Uh, and again, being a child of that age, and my uh, family did a lot to kind of shelter me and my sibling from the goings on of the harshness of the world. I wasn't really aware of all of what was going on. But then in middle school at 11 years old, I started wearing hijab. So that very much informs how I've walked through the world, aside from the fact that I am very unmelanated and very pale skin. Um, I am multi-ethnic. My father is an Iranian immigrant and my mom is white, mixed European ancestry. Um, anyone who is mixed in any way, ethnically or racially, I can guarantee will tell you the same thing. Like being mixed ethnically is a very sticky, very awkward existence of like, never belonging anywhere. You're too much of something. You're too little of something. You're never enough of something. And I find that the mix, ironically, of being Muslim, which is constantly thought of like being from the Middle East, um, which just for all listeners listening, please understand that not all Muslims are from the Middle East. Actually, most Muslims around the world, there are an estimated 1.8 billion Muslims around the world. Most of those Muslims do not live in the Middle East and are not actually Middle Eastern. And also, there are many people from the Middle East who are not Muslim. Christians and Jews and pa uh, pagans and atheists and any and all religions you can find in the Middle East. So let's like break that stereotype. Um, however, because there is such a strong association of the Middle East with uh, Muslim identity, constantly when someone does see my hijab, which is why I mentioned when I started wearing hijab, there's such a strong association of being othered because of hijab, but very much having 
not maybe not necessarily white privilege because the hijab very much like racializes me as a brown person whether i would be considered actually a brown person or not i don't particularly actually identify as a bipoc person because of all the racial mixedness however uh, being on that edge of like wearing hijab and racialized as brown and obviously being Muslim while also having a lot of fair skinned, pale skinned, whatever white privilege, I feel like puts me in a bridge, a center area where, and especially being raised by a white mixed European mother gives me a lot of that kind of white socialization to be a bridge between kind of like ethnic Middle Eastern, uh, you know, Muslim cultures with white American culture, and at the same time also multi-ethnically being mixed. And then now <laughs> realizing at age 30 that I have ADHD, I did not know that for the longest time, which has been so huge to my own self-acceptance, having self-compassion for myself. That also comes a lot with having constantly been othered and not knowing why and thought that there was something wrong with me. And many people who have experienced that kind of othering in childhood and throughout their life know how like crummy it feels to be ignored and passed over. And you just never like really in with people and never wanting anyone else to feel othered or excluded in that way. So all of this altogether very much informs my own work as well as on top of all of my own personal identities as you know someone who attempts to practice the religion of islam my understanding of the religion of islam is that it is an incredibly social justice oriented religion uh very much against oppressors very much standing against people who are doing wrong both interpersonally and systemically and that that is something that we are encouraged and called on to do. So for me, this work very much is in align with my own faith values as well, not just living in my own truth, if you will, as Rahime, an individual. I would like to also know, because um, I think this is also very important, but what is it like for you as a Muslim American and also someone who's neurodiverse existing mm. in the workplace? Uh -huh. It's so fun. It's so awesome. It's amazing. Totally advise it. 10 out of 10. Um, so I will say that an area of privilege that I have, which, um, I think that there's obviously there is a lot of tension around the conversation around privilege. There's nothing inherently wrong with having privilege. It's just, we should recognize where we have had it easier than others, whether we have not faced certain barriers that others have faced, or we have had like a push in the right right direction, like an advantageous re uh, direction in life that others have not gotten, right? And by recognizing that, we can then hopefully deconstruct that privilege so that all people can benefit who don't necessarily have that privilege that is unearned, right? So like little privilege 101. So having said that, a privilege that I have enjoyed throughout life is that I have grown up in a very um, liberal, progressive, area of the country in which being Muslim, especially being visibly identifiable as Muslim, is a lot easier, less hard, less um, oppressive than other areas of the country. I have only experienced like outward shows of Islamophobia a handful of times throughout my life. And I am incredibly grateful for it only being that small number 
of times there have been many Muslims, especially Muslim women who wear hijab, because of course we are very visibly identifiable as Muslim. Anyone who wants to say anything or do anything, retribution against Muslims, like they know where they can go to, you know, express that, unfortunately. Um, because of where I have lived, I have had the advantage of, for the most part, just having a lot of ignorance of Muslims, a lot of like not knowing what to expect from me, kind of like this sense of like being an alien that, oh, I don't know what, what is happening. Who is this like wonder and amazement and awe and like almost fear like mixed in together and then being a normal human being that I am and all Muslims are normal human beings. When we in fact are normal human beings, it's just like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. You're like revolutionary just for existing. So on one hand, like now doing the DI work that I do around Muslim inclusion, religious inclusion, it is kind of an advantage because I don't have to work too hard to be impressive, even though I do think I am very impressive, if I do say so myself, but it does really set the bar very low for a lot of Muslims to just like show up as regular human beings, like normal quote unquote things. And we look like we're breaking barriers, breaking stereotypes just by existing. So I would say that that is very much something that I have experienced um, the, a couple of times for specific examples of how I personally recommend as an individual practice the religion of Islam, I do want to emphasize again, which I have to make sure is a point that I make in all of my engagements and in the content that I do, I post on multiple different uh, platforms for social media, not just to promote my business and my services, but also genuinely to advise people on how to be inclusive of Muslims and other religious marginalized communities, because there are so many people who want to do that, who want to be inclusive and understanding, and they just don't know what they don't know. And so for those people, I genuinely want to make this uh, stuff accessible. For that, I have to emphasize over and over again, there are 1.8 billion Muslims around the world. We come in all shapes and all sizes and all forms, all ethnicities, all cultures, socioeconomic statuses and genders and, and everything in between. So anything that I might say about how I practice Islam, and also there are different sects of the religion, of course, that have various different uh, beliefs, though, of course, we are all Muslim. And then there's levels of religiosity. No one is here. I am certainly not here to shame another Muslim. I'm not here to say that I'm a perfect Muslim. So please understand all my caveats and understand like asterisks of not judging other Muslims, myself as a Muslim, or for you to come listen to this podcast and say, oh, I heard this Muslim person. And she said that this Muslim is a bad Muslim because they do this or they're not Muslim like her. So they're bad. And now I'm going to throw it in their face. Please do not ever do that. If you listen to just this podcast, if you follow me on any other social platform, do not do that. So having said that, I recommend as an individual, uh, don't sit at a table where alcohol is being consumed. It is generally accepted amongst the majority of Muslims that consuming alcohol is not acceptable from a religious perspective. Uh, and some Muslims, not all, will go so far as, you know, what I have been taught by the scholars that I have learned from is that we're not also supposed to sit at a table where alcohol is being consumed. So at professional gatherings, uh, this can be tricky where I might simply just opt out of attending, especially if it's, you know, a social happy, a happy hour, I, you know, respectfully just won't attend. 
I've asked for tables set aside for me where it would be a dry table. And I very awkwardly had to sit by myself. Um, and, you know, one person might have come sat with me, you know, because of their good nature. Um, and I had to pretend like that didn't bother me. Uh, you know, I've, I also, as you know, again, myself as a Muslim, not all Muslims do this. I don't uh, shake hands or make physical contact with people of other genders. So in a professional setting, this shows up as not shaking hands with men. Uh, and of course, sometimes like people try and give you a side hug or try and like tap you on the shoulder or give you a high five and stuff. But usually it's more around uh, shaking hands. And I have a whole script that I've come up with and a lot of Muslims, both men and women and any gender of Muslim will come across when they interact with another person of a different gender that is trying to assure them that I'm not, you know, offended by them. I'm not, I don't hate them. It's not anything about ill will. It's just about a boundary that I have is that I'm not having other people physically touch me, right? And that can be rather awkward. <laughs> Ironically, it's actually been more so in DEI related spaces that I've gone more side-eyes because of the shaking hand thing than I have from, you know, non-DEI related spaces, which is just like, mm -hmm. come on guys, the like, it really is not that big a deal. Like if I just don't want to touch your hand. And now after COVID, that helps, even though now in like, mm. you know, July 2023, a lot of people have returned back to, you know, pre-COVID times, which, you know, guys, please wash your hands. Please, please wash your hands. Exactly. You know, I, I it's interesting that you bring up alcohol, too, because, uh, I mean, from a non-religious standpoint, too, mm. uh, going beyond, beyond the scope, I also find it very concerning that that we normalize that workplaces are trying to normalize alcohol usage, you know, with parties. Oh, it is, it is normalized. Like it is the norm. Yes. It's well established for sure. And there are people who, you know, um, have quit alcohol. I mean, mm. there are people who don't drink alcohol for religious reasons and also for health reasons and for mm. other personal reasons. And, you know, I stopped drinking because uh, I definitely have my own health issues that I have mm. to contend with. And mm. it's important. It's it often feels like there's a shaming of yes. that all the time, mm. you know, and I it, and it's and it's like I think we have to have that conversation, too. But also yeah. the topic on consent when it comes to handshakes, hugs, and yeah. I'm guilty of, because I love to give hugs to people that I know. But I also want to be yeah. very mindful that not everyone um feels comfortable with it and that is yeah. okay and yeah um I think I I kind of wonder about like when you bring these up in DI workplaces mm. uh, and when you bring it up in workplaces when you do the when you do your education on it um what is often the reaction that you normally get and do people see themselves taking the action the, the, the right course of action to mm. address it or do you see this being such a struggle in your work? I try, so on, in my, you know, freely available, freely accessible content online is kind of one bucket and then client work that's much more tailored and customized is kind of another bucket. So I'll answer on both of those kind of um, facets. So in the content that I uh, produce on different socials, both like text form and articles and video and, and so on, because I don't have 
control over who is listening and who is consuming that content. I try to be very intentional with cultivating a following and an audience that has an understanding of DEI or the values of DEI, whether they call it that or not, where they see, again, that diversity is a positive, being inclusive of people, being respectful of difference is a positive and is something to, you know, want and to want to do and being understanding of others. It's not, and this is where I pull in my, I have a master's degree in intercultural communication. And this is where I start pulling in that side of things, which I love from that, from the intercultural communication field is the idea of like getting to know different cultures tends to be, we think about like national cultures, but it could be ethnicity. It can also be religion. It can also be gender. It can also be like fandoms, right? If you're into different like animes or into different books or something like they have their own fandoms of communications and uh, jargon and ways of being and ways of joking that is understand by the community that I would make a case for is its own culture. So in that way, we're not saying that one culture is better than another. One culture has a different way of doing things and that's fine. And we can get to know another culture through, you know, multicultural events, intercultural events, and truly appreciate the beauty of this different way of living and being without it being a commentary on our culture's way of being and doing things. It doesn't have to be a competition. It doesn't have to be commentary, negative or positive about one or the other. It can just be, again, appreciating the beautiful diversity of human existence without us, you know, getting into you're stupid. No, you're stupid. No, you're stupid. <laughs> He's stupid. So sorry, Randy, did you want to say something? No, I was just going to say because uh, because I know like when you're doing this this level of education to the to clients and also mm-hmm. to uh, to the general public, I'm I'm very curious like what um like what areas of focus that you do in your advocacy and education about the Muslim community mm-hmm. and also mm-hmm. with other communities in the workplace because I I because there's so very few um di practitioners that actually include muslims Mm, and mm. there's very few di practitioners that include people with disabilities Mm, and mm. and uh people who are deaf and hard of hearing and Mm. so forth i mean there's Mm. different intersections and marginalized identities that we're still not addressing but i'm curious as to the focus on your advocacy and education about uh the community uh, the muslim community in the workplace and what does that look like Um, when you are teaching and bringing it up to clients clients specifically okay let me finish okay so the idea being I take an approach from uh, so I don't do anything with minors that's very important to know like from my approach so anyone interested in you know working with minor populations k-12 programs after school programs and so on um I'm sorry I, I don't I'm not the best person to ask or to learn from for that sake so with adult learning theory the idea being is that adults already have an extensive amount of knowledge and lived experience at themselves as individuals and as people. So attaching new ideas or things that I want to change about someone's behavior or perspectives onto something that they already are well familiar with, that they're already well on board about, and then extending that out. And it's actually interesting. I had a conversation with a DEI colleague yesterday where we were talking about 
uh, she brought up uh, censorship, right? That we shouldn't censor ourselves to make people comfortable. And while I appreciate where that's coming from, and I, you know, pose this to her as well, and I think that she was receptive to it. For me, I don't see it necessarily as censoring as much as tailoring the message so that it is as much as possible packaged in a way that that person can hear what we're saying instead of being triggered and set into like fight, flight, freeze, fawn mode, feel like they're being, you know, rib, um, sorry, ripped away their resources or anything like that, where you are, you can, like, we should make people uncomfortable. Absolutely. But to the degree of one degree, two degrees, maybe, but any further, and I'm sure we've all experienced this as well, whether we do DI work, whether we do justice oriented work, we have justice oriented values, which hopefully the people listening to this do. I'm sure we have also had instances where we have gotten lessons in life, interpersonal, systemic, justice, sociology, math lessons in school that were too many levels ahead of where we were at. And we, our brain just like clipped off, like, oh my gosh, I just can't comprehend what I just listened to, right? So that is not actually effective in the change that we want to see. So in the client work that I do, a lot of it is working with the point of contact that hired me to get a very good understanding from their perspective on their organization, their people, what are the questions that they have, what are their understandings of DEI, DEI-related values, what are the problem points that they've already experienced around religious identity, around Muslim identity, or about DEI concepts overall, so that I can tailor the message of whatever engagement that we're doing that is one or two degrees beyond what they are already, the level that they're already at. So that yes, they are very much uncomfortable for sure. And I can work through them with as much non-judgment as possible. I think that there are times and places, and especially like in, you know, social media settings or, you know, public speaking, uh, um, public speaking settings where you're not directly talking to a captive audience, like say a training where you have like 30 people and you're talking more directly to those people. If you're talking on a YouTube video and potentially thousands or millions people could see it, doing calling out can be effective in some senses versus using a calling in perspective where it's like, I understand, like you heard me say in this conversation already, where I acknowledge that it is understandable and I get where the tension around talking about religious identity comes from. So validating that, naming it that, hey, I recognize that this is something that you could be feeling. You're feeling tension. You're feeling like you don't want to engage in this conversation. I recognize it. I validate it. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to like not talk about it or like let you get away with not talking about it. Right. So working through and having that understanding. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So what does calling in versus calling out look like in this uh -huh. case? So let's say if I am talking around an issue of Muslim inclusion. So again, one of the biggest. Um, so if we're talking about, for instance, Muslim inclusion, one instance that we might get pushback on is that organizations might not want to give their employees time off for the holiday at the end of Ramadan which is called Eulafit, 
Um, and it is a, if anyone is familiar with Ramadan, it's a month long period where from sunrise to sunset during the sunlight hours, not all day, every day for a month, Muslims will fast from all food and water uh, if you are physically healthy enough to do so. So if you're sick, if you're pregnant, if you're a child, like you don't have to do that. And then at the end of that month, it's a very like spiritually driven time, very community focused. People, Muslims will give a lot of charity. It's a very, very, very big deal for Muslims all around the world. And at the end, there's a holiday called Eid al-Fit, which is a celebration, not a hooray, yay, yay, it's over, we're free. It's not that kind of energy, but just like, a celebration that had happened, that we participated, that we were able to live through another Ramadan and looking forward to the next year. People put on their best clothes, there's festivals, there's special prayers, people will give gifts to children, all the things. Okay. However, unfortunately, even yes, in 2023, a lot of employers are still not approving time off for their Muslim employees to go and get that time off, even if they have saved up PTO their own PTO for it. They're not using a floating holiday. They're not using like special holiday time off or anything like that. It's not like they worked Christmas and now they can take either fifth off. They're asking for it way, way in advance. They're following all the procedures. There's nothing um, in the way that like a major event that is going to, that they're needed at for work that they are, you know, stepping away from work during that time. All the procedures and policies that need to be followed are being followed and yet they're still not being uh, addressed. So in that case, the understanding is, okay, this is an employer that even if say they have a DEI program manager or a VP of uh, DEI on their team, or they have a DEI statement on their website that says that they have DEI values, we can understand that truly what the values of this organization is more of the business case and more around avoiding litigation or lawsuits, right? Because generally people only have that kind of language on their website or in their policies, but then don't actually in fact follow them if they really are you know, doing a performance of DEI and or are just trying to avoid lawsuits. So understanding that that is actually their motivation, then as a DEI practitioner working with them and understanding that motivation, I can tailor my messaging to, okay, great. I'm not going to shit on you about, well, you should care about your employees and their value as humans and their dignity and that they're following all of your rules because clearly they don't care. Okay, great. Putting that aside for a moment that you should. Great. Putting that aside, I understand that what you care about are lawsuits. Let's start looking at precedents with lawsuits in the past that show that other Muslims or other religious communities have had cases won for them where they were asking for completely fair, again, completely reasonable accommodations based off of, and let's remember also that religious identity, especially in the United States, is a protected class, right? So this isn't just, you know, oh, please be nice to us just for the sake of being nice. Religious identity is a protected class, and therefore we have rights for reasonable accommodations, which clearly taking one day off when you follow all of the policies of your organization to take that time off are clearly falls into that. Using lawsuits or using uh, ways that you can ask for an ally on your team to step in for you. If you have examples from other communities, say, let's say that a Jewish person who is an ally and say coworker to the Muslim colleague, they were given time off for Yom Kippur or for Hanukkah 
or for another Jewish holiday, then that Jewish employee and that Muslim employee can work together and make a case for, hey, you were able to give off, like management was able to give time off for the Jewish employee. What is the difference with the Muslim employee and use allyship and collaboration in that way to make a case? So all of that is to say there's a million different, and this is why customizing and tailoring client engagements is so, so, so important to all DEI practitioners and all DEI work because you can't use a one size fits all approach to any of mm -hmm. these different organizations. They all have different cultures and different history with these values and where they are in the work and so on. And like even just like the structure of how they do their own work aside from DEI, that you are then tailoring your approach to what actually matters to that organization. How far along are they in the DEI, you know, values scale and what actually matters uh, to them. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for also uh, sharing these exa important examples. And what feedback have you heard from both Muslim and non-Muslim folks in response to your work? I have, so from Muslims, Muslims are still very, because this is still very new. I have been in business since 2021. So it's still very new. I'm growing my, you know, uh, network, growing my business, the awareness of my business, and as you said, there are very few others like me in the United States and in like North America in general. The UK is, I feel like, 10 to even 20 years ahead of us as far as like Muslim and religious inclusion. There's a lot of folks in the UK who are Muslim doing this kind of work, which is amazing. And I admire them so much. But in the United States and in North America specifically, we are way, 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 way behind. But because there's not that many people a lot of Muslims have never seen, as Randy, you said, as a non-Muslim, like you haven't ever seen it. Well, a lot of Muslims haven't seen it either. So there's a lot of shock. There's a lot of like pleasant surprise uh, that these conversations are happening. Glad that honestly, that they're not the ones having to do it at their own organization. I met a Muslim that uh, I met at a um, community event in my own personal life. And I was asking them about the DEI work that they might have done in their organization related to Muslims. And they said it was basically up to the Muslims in the organization to do it all themselves on top of their own work, which is honestly very common for a lot of identity groups and a lot of ERG leaders, for instance, and so on. It's basically up to employees from different marginalized identities to do the work themselves, even though they are not experts or trained in diversity, equity, inclusion, or anything of that sort, they might be engineers, or they might work in marketing, or they might work in something else that's just their job. And then on top of that, they're having to like work with management and advise people on how to be inclusive, culturally competent, and so on. So a lot of Muslims are glad to see someone else other than themselves. And especially also like I'm an external person, which brings a lot of power that I then can have uh, less checks on what I say, because I'm not worried that the person I'm talking to is going to fire me because I didn't say it in a nice enough way. Whereas an employee within an organization constantly has to worry about their employment, their healthcare, how they're sustaining their and their family's lives on top of, again, just more work that they have to do because they have a 40 whatever plus hour workday. And then on top of that, they're taking on extra meetings and extra work to try and improve the culture and the DEI standards of their organization, completely unpaid, 
which is completely unfair. So mm -hmm. from a Muslim perspective, a lot of Muslims are very pleasantly surprised, <clears throat> surprised and, you know, happy that there, this work is being done at all. And uh, from the non-Muslim perspective, still kind of like what I mentioned before, still kind of like that mix of like awe, fear, not fear as in like, oh, you're a terrorist, like cliche. I try and avoid Islamophobes as much as I humanly possibly can. I, that is mm -hmm. a boundary that I set in my own business. I'm not here to uh, engage with people online because of course like comment sections on social media are like the wild, 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 wild west. And uh, even with client work that I might work with organizations, I'm not here to convince someone of why other human beings, whether Muslims, whether other religious marginalized communities or any human being for that matter, is worthy of respect and dignity. If you don't come into engaging with me with an understanding that all human beings are worthy of respect and dignity, period, then it's like, okay, respectfully, either someone else is going to have to do the work. Hopefully you're paying them very, very well to convince you why other human beings are worth valuing and treating with respect, but I am definitely not that person. So with that, I have those people. I'm not having the like all oh, Muslims are terrorists kind of people that I'm working with as clients. So the kind of like awe, fear, wonder, like again, kind of like seeing an alien, like yeah. walk by you kind of vibe um, that they see, like I joke around, I, you know, talk like a human being. I have an American accent. I wear very colorful scarves on my videos. That's just something that I like, even though there's a whole thing about Muslims, especially Muslim women who wear hijab, if they like to wear black, because there are many people, Muslim and not, who just like to wear black. But now all of a sudden, if you're Muslim, if you like to wear black, it's all like politicized and like, oh, are you dangerous? Are you scary? It's like literally just like, there's so many people who just have black as black's clothes as their ascetic and Muslims have to like have the, all these questions about that. But generally I do like wearing colorful scarves and that just adds to the show of, hey, look, we are human beings with all kinds of likes and dislikes that are just like you and your family and your friends and the people in your communities. I have to say, it's also very frustrating when you have to explain and to educate to, 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 to ensure that we that your community is a safe mm. community too. It's, mm, it's, it's mm. like, it's like when you hear all Muslims are terrorists and you also look at um, white supremacists and the dangers of it in this country, looking at what happened in January 6th, looking yeah. at what yeah. happened with the mass shootings that have been done that's yeah. a whole nother there's a whole yeah. nother rabbit hole i don't want to get into but yeah but it also shows you the level of of disparity there, there is such a a disconnect but yet yeah. it's so right in front of us but i also kind of want to take a slight shift here mm -hmm. but like you know this past year we've been seeing places like texas and florida and other places across the u.s that are looking to abolish dei practices in the workplace and academic institutions. What does the current landscape of DEI look like now? And what impact have the backlash from DEI opponents have on your work? This is another part of where I feel that I'm very privileged to live in California and I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area specifically. Uh, because of the policies. It is absolutely not a utopia. I don't mean to imply that in any possible way. We have a lot of problems. I have um, Black folks that I'm in community with, and especially one uh, Black friend in particular. I'm sorry, 
I promise, I hope that doesn't sound performative, my black friend, but she is the um, executive director of a nonprofit called Candidly Speaking, and she used to live in uh, the Bay Area, and that's how we met, and uh, she expressed to me how anti-Black racist the Bay Area is, and how few Black folks are here, so all of that is to say that even though, yes, I am privileged to live in the Bay Area, and not have experienced so much rampant Islamophobia and violent attacks because of the area that I live in. That doesn't mean in any way that Muslims are well-treated here in general or uh, that other communities, marginalized communities are treated well in the Bay Area. So asterisks again here. Um, but with the policies coming out of certain states, including Texas and Florida, um, I think that it is too early to tell really how far these policies are going to go. Affirmative action, I think just a couple of weeks ago, it feels like mm -hmm. much longer ago now, but I think it was only like a week or two ago, uh, just got struck down by the Supreme Court. Um, many things have been moving and shaking with the politics in this country. And this is where I personally, I'm not saying that this approach is necessarily correct, or the best way, or the only way, and by far it's not the only way, the way I approach these things is going back down to the lowest common denominator between myself and who is it that I'm engaging with, whether it's a client organization or with folks on social media. If someone is saying, I believe in freedom of speech, I'm like, great, okay, let's start there. Where can we engage on that topic? If you believe in uh, you know, that people should be treated with respect and dignity. Great. Let's start with that conversation with uh, a lot of laws recently that have been passed by, you know, Christian nationalists trying to, you know, cement their Christian, like kind of, you know, respect, like weaponized Christian uh, identity. There are many Christians who are very justice oriented and very DEI oriented, you know, to say that. However, for those folks who are saying like, oh, we should be able to have Christian prayer in public schools, or we should be able to have Bibles in public government and school settings, and we should enforce saying God and Jesus in public, you know, settings that are supposed to be multi-faith or not denominational or secular at least, but respect different religious communities. It's like, okay, if you're going to pass those laws, does that apply to Jews, to Muslims, to Sikhs, to Hindus, to atheists, and so on and so forth? No? Okay, let's work from that perspective. For me, I always try and go back to the lowest common denominator that we can all agree on and then move on from there. And honestly, I truly believe in, um, you know, cutting your losses that you have to be strategic. We all as practitioners for justice or people who are interested in advancing human rights in general, we have to look at where is our time and our energy and our expertise going to be most effective towards making a change and not getting distracted by the loudest, most problematic voices. Some people feel that that means staying in these states like Texas and Florida, where these laws are being passed that are incredibly harmful. And some people believe moving somewhere else and joining more progressive valued organizations and governments are more of a positive, effective use of their time. And everyone is 
going to be the best judge of their own life circumstances, again, based off of their own energy and time and skills and their life circumstances. For instance, I don't have children. So that means that I have a lot of different choices that someone with children is not going to have. I'm never going to, as a childless person, go and tell a parent, oh, you should be doing X, Y, and Z, all these things that I'm doing, because a parent has a lot more time and energy saps that I don't have. So all of that is to say, what is it that you listening? What is your expertise? What are your values? What are you willing to fight for? What are you not willing to risk? And what is the next best thing that you can do to be effective? And please, please try very hard. And this is something that I continuously remind myself of and work very hard at is to not get distracted. If you have to ignore the news for a couple of weeks or at all, or actually like choose not to pay attention to certain things happening in the news. I personally think that that is an excellent way of fighting against, uh, what is it? Empathy fatigue or sympathy fatigue? Empathy fatigue, I believe. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Right. Like I truly like human beings in like social media and the news and like the internet, the way it is now is incredibly new incredibly new for the history of human existence it is not normal for humans as individuals to know about every horrid thing that has ever happened ever in the whole world every single day of course our nervous systems are just like on fire and of course we have our own struggles we have our personal issues some of us oh i didn't sleep well last night so i'm now even more on edge but now i have to open the news every single day or even once a week or whatever and now i get to hear on the on uh like traditional media sites or on social media wherever you get your news about every horrid murder and grape and like horrid i don't know whatever bombing mass shooting every wrong thing that has ever happened literally in the whole world every flood all day every day and we're just supposed to carry that but you can't do everything to address all of these injustices, of course, our minds are just going to melt. So for myself, like compassionately, I truly believe like to be effective because we want to create change. We want to push for more justice. We are not serving ourselves, like our own well-being in general, and we can't do anything positive in the world if we're not trying to take care of our own well-being. And also we cannot be effective for the causes that we are willing to commit to and we are able to commit to by constantly setting our nervous system on fire and just like we're just all just going to cry into a puddle and never like come out of our rooms and never get on the internet ever again because we're just so sad and depressed like that's just not effective yeah, yeah thank you for naming that and because it is very important because yeah we are so exposed as you say to so much horrible things yeah i I get very frustrated, but I also had to stop watching traditional media outlets for a yeah. while and and stop responding or stop yeah. posting yeah. because it's yeah. like, I feel like it's also an echo chamber. It's like, okay, you know, this is my threshold right now. But that doesn't mean that I lack compassion for what's going on. Of course on not. Way. And I think that not. is yeah. what I try to tell people when I try yeah. to tell myself that too, yeah. because it's okay. But you can still care, but you can also hold boundaries too. Uh, in terms of what you can handle because yes yeah. I mean 
I think it's very important to uh, to name that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to say more recently, we've seen companies like Anheuser Busch and Target mm, have been mm, scapegoated mm. by politicians and right wingers for demonstrating the pro LGBTQ mm. stance. Due to the backlash, it seems like many companies are so wary of taking any stances that uplift marginalized communities. What is your take on it, and how do DEI practitioners practitioners push back on companies that are worried about the impact of DEI on their bottom line? I think that, again, with my approach of going to the lowest common denominator of what we can agree on, if you are working with an organization or approaching addressing an organization that is focused on their bottom line, which, again, I think that there are spaces for sure to call that mindset and behavior out. But if you are addressing them and trying to create change, a lot of the times like shooting on them and saying, oh, well, you should care about like the dignity of human life, but they don't, they literally don't like, especially under capitalism, Mm -hmm. like these corporations, these major, major corporations, like we know they don't, we know that they don't care about the sanctity of human life. Right. So not pretending that they do and shooting that they like shooting on them that they should care about it, setting that aside, because those are our values. That's how someone would convince us, but we're not trying to convince ourselves or people like us. We're trying to convince people who are looking at profits and, you know, how are they going to sell more stuff? Right. Okay. You have to go with what they care about. And if what they're looking at right now or at any moment is their bottom line, then you need to come up with reasons why it's going to affect their bottom line more so to step away from DEI overall or DEI related values. Um, I personally would just, you know, put a push for um, like anywhere that you can buy similar kinds of products to these major corporations that are family owned, that are black owned, that are women owned, that are minority owned, whatever, you know, the case may be going and shopping for books at a local bookstore that is sourced from like an individual person who is, you know, a black woman, right. Or someone else, if you can buy, I mean, again, I'm Muslim, I don't consume alcohol, but there are people obviously who do drink alcohol. So if you are going to these beer companies, try and find somewhere that is locally sourced, that isn't organization that that's all they do they just have that one institution and you can give your dollars like if we have to play capital the game of capitalism we can vote with our dollars to these organizations so if you are going to address these major corporations try as much as it galls you and i totally appreciate it we if we're going to do this work we have to have the dei practitioner hat And then we have the like, okay, I'm me as an individual, right? For instance, like when I do Muslim inclusion work and I talk about Muslim stuff, I have to put aside me Rahime as a Muslim individual and I have to put my DEI practitioner hat so that I don't take things personally or I don't get offended by certain questions or certain like perspectives that people have had. I have had people to my face tell me that believing in God is the same as believing in the tooth fairy and Santa Claus, like legit believing that right? And me writing it as an individual might not appreciate that opinion. However, the DEI practitioner in me with that hat on, I can say, great, you have the right to that opinion, have that opinion. I don't care. I'm not trying to convince you otherwise. However, 
you do have to still respect and equitably treat and inclusively treat people who don't believe the same thing as you. Fair? Fair. Great. Let's move forward on how to do that. Right? Um, so in the same way with like these major corporations that are taking actions that are not in alignment with our own values, there are moments where calling out is appropriate and great. We can have those uh, conversations, you know, on social media, tagging people, you know, writing emails to Congress people, call, phone calls, you know, making our voices heard, voting and all of that. And then there are times where if you really want to be persuasive, you have to look at what is actually going to matter, what does matter to the entity, the organization, the individual that you are trying to persuade and talk to them based off of their values, not your own values. Thank you for sharing that. And what are the three or actually what are the few essential practices that help us to be better allies and advocates in the workplace? The first and foremost thing would be I, with, with time, I really have developed the mindset that we, none of us should call ourselves allies. That is a practice kind of like if anyone uh, watched um, any content or read the uh, book from Ibram, Dr. In Ibram Kendi, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist. He talks about that this is an action that beliefs can be racist or anti-racist actions, uh, policies, but individual people, like in totality, we can't say this, like in the concept of racism or anti-racism, this person is racist, this act, this person is anti-racist. And I would say, make the same case for allyship. This person is an ally, this person is not. This belief that they have, this action that they took this time is an act of allyship, but just as much as a certain action that someone might take or many actions for many years that someone might take might be an act of allyship. If they stop acting in that way or they don't act as an ally in a certain instance, then you don't get to use your allyship badge of like, oh, well, I've been doing all of this. I've gotten all this cred. I've like stocked up all this goodwill with this other community that I am privileged and this person and this other community is marginalized in relation to the same identity that I have. Therefore, I get to now have an opinion about this other marginalized, this marginalized community that I'm an ally to. I now have sway or I get like certain credit points to act out or whatever. No, the actions that you do, the beliefs that you have can and should be acts of allyship. But I very much am coming to a place of like calling ourselves an ally. I like cringe when I see people on social media and their like bios have like, hashtag ally, I'm an ally of this community, that community. And I've seen, especially, um, you know, black women content creators that I follow, I try and follow as many black female content creators as I possibly can. I highly recommend that to everyone. Like pro tip for life, honestly, anywhere you mm -hmm. see a black woman, just like learn from her and soak her up and protect her and pay her and respect her, seriously. So with that, seeing so many of them, and I also have a, a Jewish American, uh, friend on TikTok uh, who I've learned from as well. And for her, she also shared the same thing around like people wanting to be an ally to the Jewish community. It's like the more you advertise to me and yell at me that, hey, I'm an ally, I'm an ally, ally I'm an ally, the more I like don't believe you, right? Because why are you trying to convince me by saying you're an ally instead of just sh showing me and demonstrating through allyship in action, right? 
So all of that is to say, like, the first and foremost thing I would say is, like, move away from, like, oh, the goal is to call myself an ally or be called an ally to showing, demonstrating allyship in action and then continuously doing so forever, right? So there's that. The first thing would be learn from that other community. Make sure that you are listening and learning from diverse voices amongst that community, right? I've mentioned multiple times in this conversation that Muslims are incredibly diverse. And this is a fear, honestly, that I have by speaking out about my own experiences as a Muslim American and why I try so hard to emphasize over and over and over again why Muslims are diverse and people shouldn't just listen to me alone because there are many Muslims who have different experiences from me, who have different opinions of me. And I am not here to say that I'm the correct Muslim for you to listen to, and you should not listen to other Muslims. And also, if they if you listen to another Muslim and then hear about me and my opinion, that doesn't mean that this first Muslim's opinion cancels out my opinion, right? On so many different subjects. So you have to not just listen to and learn from a diversity of people within the same community so that you can be allies to them and get like the new like start playing with the nuances of different situations and understanding that people are complex and different and not just like oh I have one black colleague that I know that I have one lesbian colleague that I know I have one disabled colleague that I know or friend or what have you my neighbor and therefore I know all people I know all the lived experiences of people who use wheelchairs I know every blind person's experience because I have one friend who one time, you know, brought over another person that is blind and I had a conversation with them at a party for an hour. And therefore I now know all the experiences of every blind person on earth. That's, of course, that's not going to be a thing, right? So making sure that you're listening and learning from many different kinds of people and not invalidating each other's experiences, like weaponizing one person's experience as a quote unquote ally by saying, oh, well, I heard this person and you like one person's experience or their call to action is less intrusive to your life, say, or less work for you. So you try and use that person's perspective to invalidate someone else's perspective that might call on you to do more work or to deconstruct isms or biases that you might have. Uh, and then in the instances where this person, this community that you have learned from, you've spent time understanding, you have an understanding of the nuances in their community. And obviously also create relationships with those individuals that are genuinely based on respect, sincere respect, and not having this, oh, well, because I am from the dominant identity or a more privileged identity, I therefore have like a superhero savior complex to save the day as an individual without being called upon. If you are in relationship with people from these communities and they call on you to step in for them, then be ready, like have scripts ready to go where you are the person who can take on the burden of uh, stopping discrimination, interrupting biases, making sure that you are protecting that community. Thank you for sharing these essential practices. And where can we follow your work? Thank you so much for asking. Yes, as I mentioned, I do post on a number of different social media platforms, not just, you know, to share that my business exists, but also like genuinely offering what I hope to be incredibly helpful and valuable content and advice and perspective changing thought pieces for you all to learn from and go forward. So having said that, 
I am on LinkedIn, I'm on YouTube, I'm on Instagram, and I am on TikTok. And then most recently, I am on Threads, if you are on Threads. Uh, I have an email list. And of course, all of this is going to be housed on my website, which is just rahimeramazani.com. No slashes, no dots, no anything. However, I am sorry, you will have to uh, spell my name correctly, but it's just rahimeramazani.com. Awesome. And so last question is, if you were to talk to your past self 10 years ago, what would you say to that person? I don't... I don't know if there's anything I could say to them. Like if there's one thing I could say to them, I would tell them to look up ADHD way sooner because it's only by accident that when I got on TikTok that the algorithm started feeding me ADHD neurodiversity content. And as a DEI practitioner, I was like, oh, this is my opportunity to learn about another community and be inclusive. And then I was like, oh, hmm, that's not everyone. Oh, I'm like that. Oh. Oh, hmm. oh, hmm. yeah, yeah. So that was that, but it was literally just by accident. So if I could tell myself like some advice, I'd be like Google ADHD and like look that up. I don't know if all the videos and TikTok, I don't think existed 10 years ago, but anyway, I don't know if that would be a thing. However, more than anything, I would probably just give myself like a really, really big hug because I've been working so much on self-compassion and self-love. I've like not necessarily hated myself, but I'm very much a recovering perfectionist. And my perfectionism was never directed at other people. It was always directed at self-critique and like, oh, you're horrible. Oh, why are you taking up space? You should be embarrassed. You should like, not again, not hate yourself per se, but just like just so much negativity. And I know I still fight against that voice still today, but it was so bad 10 years ago for sure. Honestly, just give younger Rahime a really, really big silent hug yeah thank you uh thank you so much for this and i want to say thank you so much for this wonderful wonderful in-depth conversation and for really taking a deep dive in to your experiences but also to uh, share your work and i thank hope you. that people can come away with these important practices mm -hmm. in mind and also to to expand ways to to uh, expand compassion within yeah. ourselves and also with others, but really to do it within ourselves because that's mm. how we foster community and that's mm. how we dissolve the barriers that do exist. Yeah. So I just yeah. want to say thank you so much for being on my show, Arahime. Thank you, Randy, so, so much. Be well, be safe. Thank you to all the listeners who got this far and I wish you safety and peace. Thank you. Well, that is a wrap for today. And I want to say thank you so much for listening to my guest and for this episode. So be sure to check out previous episodes that you might have missed. And to stay tuned, check out my Instagram at bunmi, which is B-A-N-H-M-I underscore chronicles. Or you can just type into my Facebook page at the bunmi chronicles or on Twitter at M-I underscore chronicles and also before before you leave uh make sure that you send a five-star review on apple podcasts and be sure to uh, check out for any new episodes thank you so much and again have a wonderful day